Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week's guest is Peter Massini, who's policy lead on green infrastructure at the Greater London Authority, or GLA. We talked about what the term green infrastructure includes and why a network of living assets are just as important as transport, sewers and power networks, as well as forming a critical basis for thinking about public health and addressing the consequences of climate change during the relentless drift towards increased density in major global cities like London, New York, Barcelona and so on. We talked about how national policy frameworks, particularly things like biodiversity net gain, might interact and sometimes conflict with the more advanced regional and city plans and what can be done to maintain the scaling up of urban greening without diluting quality. And of course, we spent some time thinking through how what we know about the pandemic so far might indicate some of the opportunities and obstacles we'll see being thrown up for green infrastructure development. As ever, if you uh, enjoy the podcast, I'd like to invite you to uh, to give us some feedback and interact with us online. The Twitter handle is at MakingGoodPod and leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps our guests uh, work, find a wider audience. Yeah, hi Lee, sure. Um, I'm Peter Massini and I currently work for the Greater London Authority uh, and I lead on policy and practice on green infrastructure. That's a good place for us to um, to start um, maybe unpacking a little bit for the non-specialist listeners amongst us. What does the term green infrastructure encompass and how does it relate to nature-based solutions, which is another one that, that's been um, on, on lots of people's lips recently? Yeah, so, so green infrastructure, it's a bit of a clunky term, but um, uh, I, my, my career started off in ecology and nature conservation and uh, a lot of the work we do is around parks and green spaces. Um, but in recent years, we've focused on this t- term green infrastructure because we really want to understand how we manage parks, green spaces, trees, rivers, green roofs in urban areas in a much more integrated way that the so spaces and places are planned, designed and managed to provide a whole range of benefits. Um, Traditionally, we thought about parks as places of recreation, uh, street trees as bits of adornment along along routes that make the place look nice. But if you think about them as this infrastructure, um, you get um, much greater insights into how you can actually plan and design them better, uh, but also encourage the notion that these aren't just nice to have. It's not just a nice verdant backdrop to the city they're actually essential infrastructure, just like our transport network is, a digital network or the pipes network. It's a network of living assets that provide benefits which um, support living in cities. What are some of those benefits? So I mean, traditionally, the benefits have been around recreation, you know, recreation and heritage conservation. I guess that's what most people think about when they think about parks and trees and urban areas. Uh, and they're fundamentally important, and the planning system still focuses on that as a reason for protecting and conserving that network. But in recent years, there's been a much greater focus on the benefits of green infrastructure in addressing issues around climate change. You know, how does green infrastructure make the city more resilient by helping to deal with stormwater flooding to help keep the urban environment cool? Um, and probably the big issue now, and it's been brought into sharp focus by the current uh, coronavirus pandemic, is the public health benefits of, uh, of that green infrastructure. And it's actually going back to some of the original purposes of parks. Uh, when the first public parks were created in London and Liverpool, they were designed as places where the urban poor could experience some fresh air. Um, it wasn't a completely altruistic um, uh, intervention by the sort of city planners. It was to make sure the urban poor who work in the factories uh, could could work longer and work harder. But uh, you know, it was driven by a public health agenda. And I think that public health agenda now, along with climate uh, resilience to climate change, are probably now the major drivers of our thinking around green infrastructure in cities. 
Mm-hmm. There's some. Um, there's a. Re- it's a really interesting history of some of those, uh, the early early uh, social welfare interventions, housing, and so forth. About the, the way in which you, the things that you can do to create a bus a robust population, not 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 for itself, but but in order to achieve the ends of the um, of the wider society. Um, how um, w- what specific challenges does um, does London face in this respect? Well, I guess the major challenge is, and it's it's a challenge that other big cities are facing, are that it's continuing to grow. I mean, London, cities like London, New York, Paris, Barcelona, many across the United States and, and Southeast Asia are still growing cities. They're, they're cities that are increasing their populations. More people come, want to come and live in cities because of the economic benefits of living in cities. Um, but most of those cities now realize they can't continue to expand outwards, uh, so they're becoming denser, taller cities, um, which presents huge challenges because we can't expand the existing traditional parks network because we're trying to make the uh, urban environment denser. So the challenge is how do we actually create the benefits you get from a park ne- parks network in the built environment and that's why the whole focus on urban greening on green walls and green roofs and uh, changing the way we think about our streets uh, less as thoroughfare and more as public realm Uh, and it's all those kind of issues that now kind of come into play uh, in how we make a a denser greener city and that that sometimes seems a bit of a, a contradiction how can you make the city denser higher population denser built environment but also make it greener but that's the challenge we have to rise to and if we think about green infrastructure beyond uh, the parks network and how we embed green uh, features into the built environment there are ways in which we can achieve it so there's multiple different kinds of interventions that come in that can come in there that we've um, that that you've just alluded to. So there's increasing vegetation on the surfaces of buildings, um, the vertical surfaces, the horizontal surfaces at the top. There's um, there's creating spaces, um, tree pits and swales and rain gardens and so forth that help to manage the movement of um, of water through the through the cityscape. Is there is there any one particular agenda that's driving things in in London, or is it is it a, a really across the board the stacked benefits of these things, which is which is now driving? Well, I, I think that the the agenda has, has changed over time. So um, I, the first real urban greening interventions, I mean, if you go back to the 1930s, there were a couple of very quirky uh, roof gardens on on buildings in London, which were um, way ahead of their time, but uh, they were very ad hoc quirky one-off projects but the um the beginnings of the urban greening movement in london was really uh, a nature conservation issue it was um associated with uh, the need to create habitat for uh, black red starts and black red starts were a protected species of bird they liked sort of industrial wastelands um those habitats and those industrial wastelands mimicked their natural habitat which is sort of cliff faces and quarries um, uh, those sites were being redeveloped as the city became denser and uh, uh, regenerated uh, and we had to think of ways in which to provide alternative habitat and, and green roofs were were an intervention to effectively protect a handful of black red starts now i think if we'd left it at uh, uh, creating habitat for black red starts there might be you know 20 green roofs in london um, uh, but I think demonstrating that green roofs were viable, uh, they were a solution to that particular issue, enabled people to think a bit more broadly about, well, what are the other benefits of, of uh, greening the urban environment? How, how can we create greener surfaces, walls, uh, swales? Uh, and the climate change uh, issue then came to the fore um you know, 10 15 years ago recognizing that we do have to address climate change a lot of the focus is, is quite rightly on about how we reduce emissions how we uh, sequester carbon um, but we also recognize that irrespective of how well we do at achieving those objectives 
we have to make cities more resilient because there will be the consequences of climate change um, which are you know well known um, more heat in the summer uh, more intense downfalls and, and green infrastructure green roofs green walls can help mitigate those impacts um, but then the uh, the policy agenda has evolved even more and it's now back to that public health agenda and so the coronavirus in the last few weeks has really brought a spotlight into onto how we need to create greener public realm to enable particularly vulnerable groups now if you look at the parks in london at the moment you know, young fit active healthy adults can get out do their exercise uh, keep social distancing uh, it's the elderly it's the very young it's those people in flats who can't get to the parks easily need some sort of green space some sort of outlet for contact with nature very close to where they live and that's where we need to start thinking about um, you know, transforming streets into linear parks and uh, and creating greener public space on buildings you know we've got plenty of green roofs now the next step is green public open space on buildings in into um I'd, I'd like to unpack um a little bit more the um the um you know the kaleidoscopic impacts that we might see from coronavirus but into what kind of what set of overlapping um uh policy networks as the um as the coronavirus landed what's 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 the lay of the land at the moment for um for for the for the way in which we organize policy around um around green green infrastructure urban urban greening so um at the moment that that although we have this sort of policy framework and it's in the london plan and the environment london environment strategy which is tries to promote this uh green infrastructure approach and it's been reasonably successful there's still quite a number of competing policy uh, uh, objectives and interests which which sometimes cut across each other that's even within you know the sector that uh, that I've, I've been working in with many years so you know, advocates of nature conservation advocates of tree planting advocates of green roofs or advocates of uh, public open space for sport and recreation sometimes those things sit a bit uncomfortably um, and uh, part of the thinking around green infrastructure is not only the need to identify where the synergies are between how we plan and design and manage space to meet those multiple objectives but also recognize there are trade-offs um, and i think the current coronavirus is beginning to again bring some of those into focus so the immediate focus at the moment is about how we manage parks because that's the uh, the the emergency the need to provide benefits uh, benefits of access and recreation has given a big focus on parks and uh, and clearly going forward how we manage parks how we fund parks is going to be important um, but in a sense that focus on park is actually detracting from the longer term objective, which is about how you green the urban environment. And um, uh, there are always these competing interests. Um, and it plays also into the, the, the transport agenda and transport policy. I think it's got a big role to play in beginning to think about how we reconfigure some of the space in urban environments. Um, because it's that nexus of, of transport, green infrastructure, access, recreation, it plays out in streets. Um, and for years, we've configured streets as thoroughfares for vehicles. We have to fundamentally rethink the nature of some of those spaces. Clearly, we have to maintain a very good street network for traffic and buses and for vehicles. But uh, at a more local level, we can fundamentally rethink that space. And that's where the most space is available to transform and is that um <clears throat> would that be to do not just with the um the thoroughfares the the space the lanes in which the um the mass transit and the private cars the the, the um the light goods vehicles and so forth are moving through but is are we also they're talking about the space of of parked vehicles so we're making it even more like putting the onus more on um on 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 streets as places for for play and for growing rather than for parking um parking vehicles using financial levers to do that kind of uh, uh, absolutely and 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 there is there is a there is a move in that direction um partly driven by 
people beginning to think about whether they need a car in an urban environment. Um, there's been a couple of uh, major developments in central London in, in recent years um, where in the initial phase of development, there's been provision for underground car parking. But actually in subsequent phases, that's been removed because after the first phase was built, the car parks were empty. Now, people are voting with their feet. You know, if you've got a good public transport system, if you're designing streets to make walking and cycling better, why would you own a vehicle that sits in a space which is not used very often and takes up space that could be used for something else? And more and more people are thinking about how you might use a vehicle when you need it through car clubs or renting or, or some other arrangements. So in a sense, market forces is pushing that direction. Um, and people's recognition that space is at a premium in cities, particularly in the center of cities, and parked vehicles uh, take up a huge amount of space doing very little most of the time. There's gonna be an interesting issue as we come out of the uh, corona crisis pandemic about the reluctance of people to go back to public transport um, because of the fear of the close proximity of people uh, and the possibility of the virus still being around and, and the second spike. Um, so that's gonna be a very interesting issue to, to think how that's managed to make sure we can still continue with that trajectory to reduce our, uh, our association with, with private vehicles. Um, and they say the corona coming out of the corona pandemic is going to be a very interesting and difficult um, phase. But I still think the momentum, the trajectory is we will reduce the amount of private vehicles in cities uh, and liberate space for other uses. In the centre, yeah, I spoke with um, with one of the senior architects at Studio Bueri about the um, the Bosco Vertical and some of their other projects, and this notion of um, <clears throat> cities as donuts. Not so much in the sense of you know the, the the trials, the economic sense that Amsterdam's trialing right now, but more in the sense of what vehicles are allowed where. So sit. Private vi private journeys allowed up until a certain distance from the centre, and then um, and then mixed in a in an in a intermediate area, and then only only mass transit. This Corona does until there's until there's a means of either treating the symptoms um, reliably, or you know, or, or vaccinating against it in the first place. You can there's going to be all kinds of ways in which um, which um, group activities, including tra travel, is um, is inhibited. Um, could I just to extend the the the, um, the point about um, the um, <clears throat> the overlapping the extent to which there's overlapping um, kind of policy frameworks which which affect this? Is there is this exclusively driven by um, by city authorities or is there um, how what's the national um, the national outlook um, within which cities are also operating? Uh, that's, that's a good question because um, um, we often have a sort of uneasy relationship with, with sort of national policies and national programs. Um, and understandably, because national policy and national programs tend to try and find a compromise, a consensus, a sort of one size fits all approach, um, which, uh, yeah, which doesn't always help. So some of the, the uh, areas of policy and, and the sort of projects we're delivering in cities are probably ahead of the curve in terms of national policy, um, which is healthy in many respects. Um, but it does mean that quite often it's difficult for city authorities to access sort of national funding uh, because it doesn't quite fit their criteria because we're we're ahead of the game in many respects. Um, uh, so, and, and that's particularly true, I think, of particularly when you start thinking of the urban rural fringe, you know, the sort of green belts around cities where you know, lots of, of uh, evidence in recent years through things like the Natural Capital Committee is saying that if government wants to invest in green infrastructure and nature-based solutions through extensive woodland planting or river restoration, actually doing it on the edge of cities is where you get most public benefit. Um, but clearly, government's also got to make sure that some of that funding, some of those initiatives are also supporting rural economies. And, and a lot of environmental schemes uh, uh, to date 
have been in part uh, to help support and maintain rural economies. So you, know, you sometimes get into this conflict of uh, um, where you might get most public benefits uh, versus the need to maintain you know, rural economies where uh, there's less investment, where there's less resource. And in theory, cities uh, have access to a, a bigger bank of resources um, if cities were were given more tax raising powers. And uh, one of the big issues that uh, I think we face in the UK compared to other cities in the US and Europe is that most of our city authorities in the UK have got very limited tax raising powers. You look at cities in Europe and in the States and the cities have got significant tax raising powers and can make decisions to impose business rates or various taxes to fund uh, sort of green infrastructure or other environmental initiatives. And should we read the um, the decentralised the efforts to decentralise power? So um, mayors in cities like London for quite a long time now, but then also more recently in um, in Manchester, for example, and um, and other cities around the UK. Is that is that evidence of a drift towards a, a space where which would be which would be closer to to what you're describing as as the best case? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's always difficult trade-offs between uh, giving the city the ability to raise its own taxes to take more of the uh, the sort of fiscal resource in the city, but also recognising that cities like London and Manchester, the revenues they generate do need to be dispersed around the rest of the country because um, because we've concentrated so much of our economic activity in those cities, and uh, uh, that money needs to be redistributed to other parts of the country, but. I think if there were better ways to allow cities to take uh, some innovative solutions to uh, sort of increasing their their uh, their tax base or, or other ways of generating some levies. So there was some work done a couple of years ago by the London Finance Commission pointing towards things like a tourist tax, that kind of stuff, which are, which are commonplace in, in Europe uh, and some US cities uh, and, and that tourist tax or or some environmental levies being being imposed, which could actually provide a a significant source of funding to implement strategic initiatives in in, in big cities. There's politics at play, of course, as ever. Uh, of course, of course. So, so um, greater fundraising would um, would allow for. Um, would allow for um, linear parks um, improving um, or pedestrianising um, certain thoroughfares, that that kind of thing. What's the preponderance, um, uh, the ratio, maybe is a better way of putting it, that you'd say between um, private developments and um, and public interventions? Where's the where's the where's the most bang for the buck um, these days? Is it a case that we need to raise this money in order to really make a difference, or or through the through um, through the building control planning process of you know of, of demanding improvements from um, from um, from from designs of private developments um, gains could be could be made there yeah so I mean it, it varies across London and, and where you've got major areas of regeneration the planning system is actually quite a good way of uh, directly delivering some of these interventions through um, requiring developers to include suds or extra tree planting or green roofs but also generating revenues to to fund uh, the wider sort of green space and public realm um, it runs into issues about you know, privately owned public space and um, uh, that's been a sort of contentious issue in london but um, the the mayor is currently working on a, a public london charter to make sure that where through a regeneration program the public realm is privately owned we ensure that the public realm aspect of that public of that privately owned land is still retained and uh, and there are some good examples at places like king's cross where you can get an effective uh, compromise um, so the planning system can generate some really good projects and deliver some fantastic schemes uh, but it's no substitute for um, public finance you know those assets which are owned by local authorities local authorities own most of the parks in london they have responsibility for managing most of the uh, the highway network uh, and that requires public finance to uh, to to improve and enhance those spaces you can leverage 
private finance and there's been some good examples with things like business improvement districts that can raise their own revenues uh, and and work in partnership with local authorities to improve the public realm and there's some, some fantastic projects of uh, local public realm urban greening projects where effectively private sector through the bids uh, support both through technical expertise and finance in improving the public realm uh, but it does require that base of public funding uh, to really underpin those projects is there any scope bids are an interesting one i've, I've, I've had some in, some encounters with um with one with one or two over over my time and is that is that model of redistributing from the private sector into you know to achieve public goods is there is there any um any comparable um um examples of um of of redistributing access to nature through for example rather than the capital using public funds or indeed private funds um to um, to create um, natural assets, which are then um, then managed and looked after by the local community. So um, taking 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 the main the care and maintenance more or less off the off the off the public public purse. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, there's lots of different models and uh, and, and often quite local organisations that uh, that take on that responsibility. So in London, you've got things like the. Um, Bankside Open Spaces Trust, which which uh, is a uh, a small NGO that that takes on responsibility for managing lots of small spaces um, along the South Bank, and they work with both private landowners and the local authority to ensure those spaces are all managed um, in a more coherent uh, way and, and and improve the quality of those spaces and they rely on lots of volunteers to do that work so they, they provide the, uh, the sort of management framework uh, with a huge input from volunteers um, to do the physical management and maintenance and and there are lots of those types of uh, project initiatives um, but you know again the corona crisis and and the economic impact of the corona crisis uh, suddenly brings those things in, into question. Things like banks and open spaces trusts are now facing a significant you know, uh, economic crisis themselves because uh, uh, they're reliant on a lot of their income through events, uh, 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 donations, a bit of private philanthropy, and a lot of those things are drying up. So um, there's lots of examples where you can work with community interest companies, with private sector uh, supporters, but it, again, I think it comes down to being underpinned by uh, public funding and, and public ownership of those spaces. Because when you do have an economic crisis or, or, or another uh, left field intervention, um, it's that public underpinning of, of those assets which, uh, which is critical. And, and will make them make those spaces more resilient. Um... <clears throat> to to events like we've seen, almost time I think to come on and and, and look a, in a little bit more detail at the um, at the coronavirus. I did, did want to want ask you about um, one particular um, um, nation uh, national policy that's um, that's that's incoming at the moment. What's your understanding of the impact of um, of biodiversity net gain on um, on on London on the, um, on the on the on the themes that we've been discussing today? So this is one of those interesting things where. Um, where national policy and, and our regional policy in practice slightly sort of rub up against each other. So the principle of binary net gain is, is great. I've got no problems with it as a, as a, as a sort of policy tool. Um, but from what I understand, and, and it's still being worked out and there's still trials and tests of the, of the, of the approach, it works best when you're building an out-of-town development on a on a piece of farmland that has a number of hedgerows, a few ponds, a bit of woodland, which may be impacted by the development. And, and you can work out the impacts, the, the amount of land that's going to be lost, turn that into credits, and then come up with something which is about both on-site and off-site uh, uh, net gain. I think the issue we've come up with, in, in, particularly in urban areas, is that most developments don't occur on greenfield sites. Uh, you know, the, the whole thrust of regeneration and urban development is to recycle uh, existing sites or um, develop um, brownfield land. And, and when I say brownfield land, I don't mean 
the the high quality biodiverse landscapes but the typical brownfield which is a redundant petrol station or a, or an abandoned industrial unit um, when you apply biodiverse net gain there uh, you're asking the developer to provide a 10 percent uplift of the existing biodiversity but if the existing biodiversity is negligible a 10 percent uplift is not very much um, so we're much more focused on uh, the urban greening factor which we've put into the london plan which requires the developer to implement a certain amount of urban greening within all new developments um, to address particular uh, environmental issues so it might be flood management it might be urban cooling it could be biodiversity uh, and that urban greening should be designed to meet the local requirements and say it could well be biodiversity we think that urban greening factor by ensuring that all developments have to incorporate some urban greening may actually deliver more in terms of biodiversity net gain than the application of the uh, the metric that's currently being proposed um, uh, and 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 we're working with people like building with nature to think about how we might actually ensure that the urban greening factor um, when it's delivered the actual design of the urban greening factor does always provide some biodiversity uplift because in most cases even if you're designing sustainable drainage or designing a green wall to uh, ameliorate um, local urban heat uh, you can design it also to uh, to enhance biodiversity the london plan how does it um, how does it actually interact with um, with a development proposal what, what's the process for um, for 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 integrating nature into um, an, an an archetypal development so just talking about london plan policies in relation to green infrastructure and, and biodiversity so there's a suite of policies i mean the head, headline policy is um uh, an approach a green infrastructure approach so we're asking local authorities when they produce their own local plans uh, because the london plan is very much a strategic framework to make sure that they're in their local plans you know, identifying the open space network needs to be protected the um, nature conservation network that needs to be protected and, and that's that's well established policy in london for years we've had a very robust process of identifying the amount of public open space that needs to be protected and the sites of importance of nature conservation uh, network which was developed by the the london ecology unit 25 30 years ago now and that provides the base resource and, and boroughs are expected to protect that base resource um, then we move into policies around um, uh, urban greening the urban greening factor so asking all developments to implement urban greening uh, if a development might impinge upon uh, an area that's identified of nature conservation value because the nature conservation sites aren't legally protected they're planted through planning they have to go through that classic mitigation hierarchy of you know, avoiding impacts uh, mitigating impacts and then compensating so there's a whole suite of policies which try to ensure that we protect the core resource where that core resource is impacted we mitigate the impacts but all developments have to contribute some sort of urban greening so it goes back to my earlier point about we're trying to address this conundrum which is about how you make a denser city greener and it, it feels like a, um, a conundrum or almost a, 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 a an impossible trick but um, uh, we do think that as developers uh, adopt some of these policies and increasingly recognize they can use a palette of materials green roofs or a palette of interventions green roofs tree planting suds green walls they can actually start designing built form which provides additional greening and can be biodiverse and say so there are some really good examples in london now of projects which have done that extremely well i would say i think we're quite lucky in london in that as well as having a very good policy framework and a lot of consultancies landscape architects who are at the top of their game working in london we've also got the benefit of high land values so 
developers can build, uh, implement um, things like the urban greening policy or energy efficient standards, which might be above and beyond what's expected from basic policy because they know land values are high, they're generating quite a high um, return on their developments. So they're less reluctant to, to push back on some of those planning policies. I think outside London, it's a, it's, it's, it's a harder sell. That's interesting. So there's some fiscal headroom within these developments in um, with Greater London Area. But then have you, um, to extend that line of thinking, as as the zeitgeist rises in which people increasingly, especially urban professionals, increasingly demand access to, um, to nature, to, um, to, um, um, uh, biophilic design internally, you may say, to, um, to, um, uh, bike parks rather than car parks underneath the, um, the buildings. Are you starting to see, um, developers themselves go beyond, um, what's required? Is there any evidence that, um, that not in order, not so much to meet a requirement, but to meet the expectations of their, their workforce, their relate, their clients, um, and, and so on? Absolutely. I mean, again, that's, that's another interesting trend is that, um, one, it's about how you, um, how you can have a, a sort of an edge on the market, you know, what, what's your particular USP? Uh, and many developers are now thinking, think about that in terms of, you know, the environmental credentials of their development. But the really interesting area, we, we recently ran a, 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 a seminar with the uh, Bartlett Real Estate Institute at UCL, um, looking about the whole issue about um, real estate investment. And it's something I hadn't really um, thought about much until recently we've had a lot of focus on we spent a lot of time in policy terms thinking about how we influence the planning agenda and perhaps not realizing actually another big uh, influence on development is the decisions taken by investors you know, all developers rely on investors to provide them with the capital to build their developments uh, and the investment market is is beginning to change. There's been a lot of work done on this by by the Bartlett Real Estate Institute, which is, and the investment model is shifting from, put simply, a model which was about uh, investing in development and you then got a capital receipt from that development, uh, to an investment model which is about investing in development where you generate a revenue from the development. Um, and if you want to generate revenues from your development, you need, you know, long term surety of you know, rents. Um, you want to be able to uh, maintain tenants of a long term tenancies. That means you've got to have better quality developments and, and developments which feel like a place rather than a, uh, a space in which you operate your business or you sleep and live. So that whole sense of placemaking, which always sounds a little bit of uh, ethereal and a bit of, bit of uh, developer um, uh, PR, is actually quite real and is being influenced by investment decisions because of that need to generate long-term revenues rather than short-term capital receipts. Uh, and things like climate change, things like the coronavirus are only adding to the appetite of investors to, to think about lower yield revenues rather than high return capital receipts and that's fascinating yeah it, it, it really is i would compare that trend with um with the emergence of, of values-based business strategy and i think one of the greatest examples in the marketplace of that one could argue is um is the um is the night collaboration with colin kaepernick you know clear decision to stand and say this is what we believe in at the expense of scaring off others just making a clear commitment to um to a bunch of its demographic buying on the basis of of values really interesting um to think about this in um in in terms of um in terms of city planning i heard a i heard an anecdote from um from um a supplier of um of um of plants and um and growing media for um for, for green roofs and and living walls they'd worked on a big project on um on a, a rooftop garden for a bank in um in in the city of london and 
They described, um, they compared the effect that it had on staff to the effect that green roofs are commonly thought to have on, um, on stormwater. So green roofs detain um, a lot of stormwater from um, from being discharged down into the sewers. They said that the the investment in um, in in greenery and placemaking in this um, rooftop garden of a bank had actually had actually retained staff at, on their lunch breaks on their on their on their downtime. People were actually spending time in in and on the building now in ways that they that they that they hadn't previously. Yeah, I think there's, there's an increasing evidence of, of that, that kind of effect, and so that's why some of the business improvement districts have uh, you know, invested in um, working with local authorities on, on the sort of public realm, in and around there, where they where the places where people work. You know, it's about um, and some of it was about increasing footfall, but increasingly it's now about you know, as I say, values. It's about how you create places of work where people actually want to stay and perhaps work a bit longer or just you know it's it helps facilitate some of those um the sort of softer aspects of of, uh, of business which is about conversations and collaboration and that's where some of the most interesting uh ideas uh happen when you're having a conversation with someone during a lunch break if that's happening on the green roof of the building you work in you're more likely to uh to take that conversation and embed it into your in, into that business. That seems like a good um, a good moment to segue into talking about some of the um, the opportunities and um, and impacts caused by the um, by the by the pandemic that we're that we're living through at the moment. How do you see um, as as things stand as as we look now? What are we four weeks five weeks into the um, into the shutdown in the um, in the UK? F- from your um, from your looking from your professional perspective, how do you see the um, the the impacts and the opportunities that the um that, that what we understand of the current configuration might throw up well it's, it's fascinating and that there's been a number of conversations going on at work and, and, and elsewhere with with other colleagues outside the gla um there's this sort of uh, we sort of yo-yo between recognizing that because uh, this is thrown a spotlight on the importance of parks and the importance of reconfiguring the public realm to provide that space for exercise and, and access to nature that in a way it provides an opportunity because uh, it's it's sort of reinforcing the policies and the advocacy that we've been uh, uh, promoting for quite a long time on the other on the flip side there's this fear that um, because of the you know, severe economic shock that appears to be coming um, things like parks investment in you know green infrastructure may actually be severely compromised because there will be a desire to invest in uh, those sectors that can get the economy back as quickly as possible Um, so there's this sort of very um, huge uncertainty about which way this will go Um, probably be a bit mixed mix of both as ever but um and it's quite a difficult, I think it's quite a difficult argument to make to point out some of the benefits that have become manifest by the pandemic. So there's good evidence now that uh, it's, it's, it's a fairly obvious thing that air pollution has, has, has got much better or, or air quality has got a lot better in London as a result of far less vehicles on the streets, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, clearly we can't say that, isn't it great air quality is, air quality is great, everyone stay indoors and don't work, you know, so um, it's, uh, it, there's going to be some interesting and uh, need to have some very thoughtful messaging uh, as we come out of the pandemic to spotlight some of the benefits that have become manifest by the lockdown of both people and the economy, uh, but also recognising that many people want to kickstart the economy very quickly because a lot of people are facing you know huge concerns about their livelihoods the um the rush to get back to normal is going to be acute i was anecdotally i was hearing from um from friends who live in london that they've not been using their asthma inhalers for um for weeks now um and it did make me wonder whether or not um the the moment at which the um the moment at which the advances that have been made in air quality um, really crystallised was would not be now so much, although clearly everyone's noticed. But once 
once everyone everyone starts getting back to normal and you're reaching for your reaching into the cupboard for your kids um kids inhaler i think um that could be a, that could be a really crucial moment to have messages available to have something available that can that can start to um start to really drive a wedge between um between you know that dirty carbon economy that we've that we've paused and um and 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 the one that we'd all we'd all like or we'd all like to live in who are the who are the people that are going to be make um going to be speaking those messages who do we need to who should we think about as a strategy um of um <clears throat> for for building on the opportunities um for for messaging about um environmental benefits that's, that's that's a good question. Obviously, the 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 various political leaderships at national government and, and regional government, city hall, need to be part of that messaging. But um, uh, increasingly, it needs to be uh, various other um, uh, partners, but but not the usual suspects. I think you know the, it 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 will be very obvious and easy for you know the usual suspects to come out and explain you know how you know as we trans as we come out of the recovery we can start thinking about things like a green new deal um but in a sense that's something we've been we've been advocating for for quite a long time and uh um it needs to be um some of the uh, uh people who are who perhaps hadn't thought about how a city might be different in the future that need to be the people advocating those messages because you know if people like myself or some of our key partners uh, are making those points, well, we're we're all we're doing is reinforcing what we've been saying for a long time anyway. So, um, um, yeah, it's it, it. I think it's going to be quite tricky to make sure we get this right as we move into recovery and we try to explain what a new normal looks like. One of the things that was um, that was on my mind was um was the degree to which these um the um the guidelines the um that the the uh, the, the boroughs are working to um underneath the GLA's um plan are these sufficiently robust to cope with um cope with you know you, a watering down of um of finishes of um of outcomes of installations that are we are we are we in are we in a place where um where we can be confident that um that that things that that um, planners ask to be done will be done um again i think i think that's it, it sort of relates back to the, the previous conversation is it's about whether um we can continue the momentum that's been uh in place for a while now in terms of the, those improvements that kind of stuff and whether whether people push back on that saying we can't do this anymore because because of the economic shock um i i i think that's unlikely um because of this recognition now that we're all in this together uh that um developers and the private sector need to be demonstrating that they're collaborating more they're working to provide you know public goods and public benefit as well as legitimately um sort of private private interest and um i think I, I, to, funny enough i think the other thing that's going to uh, to sort of shift that discussion is uh something which is i've noticed over the last few weeks in terms of having to use technology to have meetings everyone sat at home in their homes uh in their sort of casual clothing and it's actually created a bit more of an informality in conversations because uh, we all recognize we're all humans you know we're all in this together we're all humans uh, uh and it's sort of broken down some of those sort of um traditional silos of you know the the, the business meeting where you've got you know the uh, uh the public sector um policy makers and decision makers on one side of the table and and uh, the developers or someone coming to pitch a proposal on the other side of the table in in your 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 usual more corporate business uh, attire once you see people sitting in their jumpers in their in their front rooms or in their children's bedroom it it humanizes things a lot more and i think that would be a fantastic outcome is if that we you know we humanize our um meetings and our relationships uh, in 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 the future 
that's a really that's a really interesting um a really interesting point that i hadn't considered before i certainly feel that one of the things which is um has lasted built built up um momentum if you like has lasted throughout the um throughout the period of the shutdown is this sense that we're only as we're only as strong as the weakest amongst us and you know from a public health perspective those who are most vulnerable um um need to be cared for and looked after because through through their vulnerability to illness we all become vulnerable either to illness or to you know to economic malaise like we're um, like we're like we're like we're suffering and I, I certainly feel like these are these are elements which can help us to overcome in ways that we couldn't have foreseen only two months ago can help us to overcome that kind of atomized um existing the idea of kind of constant kind of constant competition and antip- an, an, antipathy that <laughs> modern yeah. life seemed to felt 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 when like people like it had become yeah and and i think it's you know even those who were sort of sceptical about the impacts of climate change, I think you know, even the sceptics, well, there's clearly a whole bunch of complete sceptics, but all those who thought, well, it's a bit off in the distance, are now thinking, well, if this is, if this is, if this is coming down the line you know, in the next 10, 20 years, um, it will, it, it, we have to collaborate more, we have to work together more, because that's a long-term problem to address. You know, the hope is the coronavirus Although it's awful, tragic, you know, we may be able to to address this and and defeat it even, you know, in the space of uh, um, six or twelve months. You know, climate change is not something that's going to be defeated. It's something we're going to have to manage. Certainly feels like there's there must be a pivot in um, in conversations after this. Even though yes, there'll be a a, a race to return industrial activity to um to to levels bef- that that they were before that that, that that there must be a pivot to um to at least an acknowledgement that 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 what's possible um the limits of the possible is expanded and that the um you know the precautionary principle that everyone's talking about the what if we do nothing the um the 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 space in which the conversation takes place can't but have been shifted by um by 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 the current um by the current situation that we're all we're all living through um so maybe um maybe to um to 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 draw the conversation then um to a um to a close what what kinds of things will you be looking to do um in at, at work as you as we get released gradually from um from the from the shutdown um what are the kinds of things that are going to be first on your desk um as we as we try to move into this um new space positively yeah I mean, it's interesting because in in a way um you know we, we've been t- having discussions about well what's our contribution to the recovery uh and, and that transition uh, and in many respects we're saying well actually for us, it's it's I hate using this term business as usual because the the proposition we've been putting forward, the 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 green infrastructure approach, was very much about how you build resilient cities, how you change the nature of cities. So, in a sense, the coronavirus and the pandemic doesn't shift our thinking in terms of the policy agenda that we've been advocating. Um, it just brings it into sharper focus. Um, clearly, there's going to be a big issue around you know, that whole issue about um, the the economic impact and whether, because of the economic impact, there will be the resources to invest in the transformation of the cityscape. Um, but uh, but in terms of of, of uh, the work I do in particular, which is around policy, it'll be about actually just saying, well, yeah, you know, that's why we had this policy framework in place. That's why we've been developing it. Now's the time to really, um, and I, I, I hate to use this word, but it's used so often at the moment, ramp it up. <laughs> Good positive note on which to almost end. Peter, thanks ever so much for, um, for, for, for talking us through that. Could I just, um, ask you to, um, as I do with all my guests before we, before we go to, um, to give us a little bit of a, um, a glimpse into, um, into your, um, under the hood, as it were, what your, um, what, what, what we might call three good things. So, um, a book to start with or a book or a podcast, should I say, um, that you think everyone should know about? So the, the, book is um 
I, I had sort of three books in mind, um, <laughs> if, if, I, if I may. Uh, one was uh, uh, a book called Future Nature, which was written by Bill Adams and, uh, and published by Routledge um, uh, on the back of a commission from um, the British Association of Nature Conservationists, which I was um, uh, participated in a number of years ago, which was, which was a group of conservation uh, people working in conservation who were trying to challenge the sort of the typical approach to nature conservation and, and future nature effectively um, uh, was some of the seminal thinking about things like rewilding and making sure that ecology was actually underpinning nature conservation practice rather than the, the sort of more mechanistic approach that came through biodiversity action plans and uh, species action plans. So future nature, but but to accompany that, a book called The Song of the Dodo by a guy called David Quarman, which um, is a book about um, uh, island biogeography and all the issues around um, uh, island uh, ecology and how that plays out in, in nature conservation in an ever more fragmented world. And, and it's got close links to the book by E.O. Wilson, The Diversity of Life. But it's also written as a travel a travel log as well. It's a beautiful book, um, beautifully written, uh, and puts across in in sort of layperson's terms some of the thinking around sort of ecology and, uh, and how we need to think in terms of ecological principles to address some of the issues which we're facing going forward. So, of of those three, I'd say "Song of the Dodo" by David Quarman. I will link to all of them. Um... And I wonder if that's available in audio book because that sounds one that like might be a good listen as well as um it's quite a long book, so it might not be so, uh... <laughs> i've um oh uh the next up then um someone or or a social media account that um that you get great value from and you think everyone should follow uh so i'm I'm gonna go with um uh John little and the at Grassroof company so john uh is a guy uh working in essex and uh He's turned his hand to a number of things. He's been, he's, he ran a sort of landscaping, landscape practice, but he also builds um, uh, uh, office, offices, sort of rooms, office rooms. But his passion now is, um, is uh, stemming from managing landscapes and, and creating green roofs. It's about how you create really biodiverse landscapes using uh, uh, effective waste materials or, or cheap uh, inert materials. So he's got a, he's got a, placed out in Essex he's been playing around with landscapes for a long time and he's creating these amazingly diverse rich uh, insect rich landscapes beautiful landscapes that are built or grow out of ceramic waste um, material dug from uh, uh, road cuttings which which is perceived as a waste material so basically he's, he's avoiding topsoil his, his mantra is like don't use topsoil use uh, a range of inert materials and he's been doing run lots of experiments and if you go onto his uh twitter account at grass roof uh, company i think it's like grass, company, grass roof co i think yeah um he's actually got some videos he just posted up now which are which is just fantastic and definitely everyone should look at those I, I I know John. I when I first got into working in green infrastructure, yeah, I went and worked with John for um, on a, on a couple of those um, outdoor classrooms that he did for um, for for some schools out Dartford, out in um, down by the down by the estuary. And those just a second that those videos that he's posting up now, the one minute guides are um, are, are really wonderful. So I will um, I'll again um, I'll, I'll I'll link to John after this, um, and then to um, to wrap things up, Peter, your favourite place in nature and why. Oh, that's a that's a really difficult one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can have three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, these just come off the top of my head as, as I think now because I've got multiple. Um, uh, one of them's uh, uh, a place called the Chase Nature Reserve in in Dagenham. Uh, when I first started my career, I, I did a rural environment studies course at Wye College, nestled in the Downs in the in Kent. I had this idea that I'd be managing a fantastic nature reserve in Norfolk or Somerset. I ended up managing a nature reserve in Dagenham, um, which is this amazing place, you know, and uh, we had lapwings breeding there and uh, long-eared owl roosts, that kind of stuff, in the middle of Dagenham, you know, and it was amazing. And I worked there for several years and it's yeah, a place I, I, I have fond memories of. Um, 
And and the other thing, the other one just, just springs to mind. I don't know why it just suddenly sprung to mind was my, my father's from Florence uh, and uh, used to go to Florence every year as a kid. And, and the river that ran through Florence, the Arno, in a, in a sort of brick built concrete channel. But in the last three or four years, even though Florence is a very bustling city, they've began to modify that channel just a little bit. And now in the middle of Florence, you can see night herons and squacko herons. It's just amazing. I'd never thought I'd see those kind of birds right in the heart of Florence and, and kingfishers flying up and down the river. So that was something that astonished me two or three years ago. And, uh, and it's sort of stuck in my memory. And of course, Florence is a wonderful city anyway. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that does sound wonderful. I've, I've I've renovated a canal boat, and which I use when I'm um, when I'm in London, and it and it never gets. Um, I never get tired of seeing um, seeing herons on the outskirts of uh, on the outskirts of London and the um, and the banks of the canal. Such a majestic bird. The um, well, happy to um, happy to uh, to second Florence then. In the, yeah, that's what I, I totally thought. So my my two favourite places were Dagenham and Florence. You couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't find two contrasting uh, places. Town and gown, as they say about Oxford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter, thank you ever so much for um, for taking the time to um, to talk us through that. Um, I'm, uh, I will I look forward to see how um, how you how you help to steward London in the um, in the coming weeks, months, and thank and you. Years. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, Lee.